Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Flora Mybridge put her newborn son down for a nap and stepped outside for some fresh air. She meandered down the cobblestone streets without any destination in mind. As she walked, she daydreamed about her lover, Harry Larkins. She and her son had been away from him for months, but they would be reunited soon. A smile drifted across her lips. For the first time in her life, she felt truly cherished. She couldn't wait to be with the love of her life. She just had to find the right time to leave her husband first. It wasn't that she hated Edward, he just wasn't the right one for her. Now that she'd found her soulmate, she wanted to let him down easy. She thought a long time about what she might say to him, and before she knew it, she'd walked all the way to the market in the center of town. The square was busier than usual, and Flora's eye was drawn to the large crowd huddled around one of the newsstands. As she approached to take a closer look, one of the townsfolk turned and pointed toward her. Confused, she walked up to the stand and reached for the day's paper. When she read the headline, her heart nearly stopped. Her dream of a happily ever after shattered in an instant. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we talked about 44-year-old frontier photographer Edward Mybridge and his wife, 23-year-old Flora. Their whirlwind romance soured after Flora began an affair with a young con man, Harry Larkins, and gave birth to his child. In October of 1874, Edward discovered the truth. This week, we'll discuss Edward's heartbreak and the chilling violence that followed. We'll also cover the media frenzy that thrust him and Flora into the national spotlight. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, 
you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. October 17, 1874, was the worst day of Edward Mybridge's life. That morning, Susan Smith, who had previously worked for his wife, Flora, told him a shocking secret. Flora had been cheating on him for months, Even worse, his newborn son had been fathered by her lover, Harry Larkins. Susan wasn't just spreading idle gossip. She gave Edward a stack of love letters Flora and Harry had written to each other as proof. Edward insisted on reading through them all, sinking further into anger and depression with each new page. It was all too much to bear. Edward thought he'd ended whatever was going on between the two of them by sending Flora away to Oregon. But though she was in Portland and Harry was over 500 miles away near the town of Calistoga, California, they still wrote to each other like passionate teenagers. He had no idea how intense the relationship had become. The more Edward dwelled on the situation, the more devastated and angry he became. He sulked on the floor of his home, weeping, surrounded by the love letters. He felt broken, betrayed, overcome by loneliness. But more than anything else, he felt humiliated. He was terrified Flora's affair would become a local scandal. As a celebrated photographer, Edward had a reputation to maintain. He knew his shame would be public soon, and he would be ridiculed for letting his wife fall into the arms of another man. Edward decided there was only one thing he could do. He'd warned Harry Larkins to stay away from Flora. Without Harry, none of this would have happened. Without him, Edward's pain would be gone. Harry Larkins was going to pay for what he did. After learning about his wife's affair, Edward was overcome by a powerful cocktail of emotions. Any one of them might have won out, but in the end, his embarrassment proved to be stronger than his heartbreak. Before I continue with Edward's psychology, please note I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 2010, psychologist Walter Torres and Raymond Bergner published an analysis on the consequences of humiliation. They found that in criminal cases, humiliation is often imputed to be a primary motive for the act of vengeance. In these instances, people often believe that only revenge can allow them to recover from their trauma. Vengeance becomes a fixation that can consume a person's life. Nothing is more important to them than reclaiming their sense of honor. After hours of crying and reading, Edward finally stumbled to his feet. 
Harry Larkins needed to be punished, and he was going to make him suffer no matter what it took. He wiped away his tears, scribbled down a brief list of his last wishes, grabbed his Smith & Wesson number two revolver, and left his house. Edward thrummed with adrenaline as he stepped out onto the streets of San Francisco. He wanted to go straight to Calistoga and give Harry a piece of his mind, but he had business to attend to first. Around 2.30 p.m., he headed out to his art gallery to meet his manager, William Rulofsen, and deliver his last wishes. The second Edward stepped into the gallery, William could tell something was wrong. Edward was distraught and intense. He immediately took William aside and started to rant incoherently. William led Edward to a dressing room that was empty and tried to settle him down. Once they were alone, Edward handed William his final wishes and tearfully told his friend that he might be dead soon. When William asked what was wrong, Edward responded, it is too horrible to tell. Then he slumped onto a couch and put his head in his hands. William couldn't get any straight answers. After several more outbursts of grief, Edward suddenly stood to leave. When William tried to block his way, Edward grabbed him by the shirt and threw him aside. William was stunned. He had never seen Edward so upset and worried he might hurt himself. He chased his friend down the stairs, begging him not to leave. At last, Edward told William what was really going on. He was going to confront Harry Larkins, and by the end of the day, one of them would be dead. William didn't know how to react, but he did know that the last ferry ride toward Calistoga left at 4 p.m. He tried to stall as long as he could, but Edward refused to listen to reason. At 3.56, he bolted for the door. In less than four minutes, Edward sprinted eight blocks from the gallery to the wharf, boarding the ferry just moments before it cast off. As he caught his breath, he turned to watch the San Francisco Pier fade into the distance. Edward stood motionless at the back of the ship. Eyes fixed forward, he did his best not to make any sudden movements. But no matter how he tried to steady his breathing, he just wasn't used to carrying a loaded gun at his side. His head was pounding. The emotional toil of the day had already exhausted him, and it was far from over. At least, he thought, in a few minutes, the first leg of his trip would be over. He'd be one step closer to Harry Larkins. Edward gripped the ship's railing tightly and fixed Harry's image in his mind. He wondered what the scoundrel was doing that very moment. Somehow ruining someone else's life, no doubt. He needed to be stopped. As the horn of the steamboat sounded, he looked toward the approaching coast. The evening glow reflected off the calm water. He couldn't help but think that this might be the last time he'd ever see the sunset. If it was, so be it. Edward got to his first stop, Vallejo, at 6 p.m. He headed straight for the railway station and bought a one-way ticket for Calistoga. Four painstaking hours later, 
His train arrived at the very end of the line. He was close now. He hired a horse-drawn buggy to take him just outside of town to Yellow Jacket Mine where he knew Harry Larkins was staying. In the pitch dark, the buggy set off on the 10-mile winding journey through Mount St. Helena. Edward was tense. He was just about an hour away from coming face to face with his enemy. Edward rehearsed the confrontation in his mind as the carriage rattled down the trail. Just before midnight, the glow of the campfires outside the Yellow Jacket Mine came into view. It was the moment of truth. Edward was ready. Inside the camp, Harry Larkins lounged in the sitting room of a small cabin, telling a rapt audience tall tales from his life. His fellow cabin mates were gold miners and a few women who were visiting from the nearby town. The men played cards while the women hung on Harry's every word. When the festive atmosphere was interrupted by a knock at the door, the room fell silent. One of the miners rose to answer it, and after a moment, nudged Harry to tell him there was a visitor outside. Confused, Harry walked to the doorway and stared out into the night. Edward remained in the shadows, several feet away. As Harry came into view, he gripped his gun and stood his ground. Harry couldn't see anything outside of the cabin. He called out for the visitor to step into the light. From the darkness, Edward answered, My name is Mybridge, and I have received a message from my wife. Harry panicked, but before he could make a run for it, Edward raised his pistol, took aim, and fired. The bullet struck Harry in the chest. He stumbled back into the cabin, grasping his wound and howling. The others inside jumped up and watched in horror as Harry ran out the back door. Edward casually followed him into the cabin, gun still in hand. He gazed at the stunned faces staring back at him and calmly apologized for the disturbance. One of the miners raised a gun of his own in response. Edward voluntarily surrendered his weapon, then took a seat while another man went outside to check on Harry. He returned a few moments later. Harry Larkins was dead. Those who remained in the cabin were shocked and bewildered. After a moment, they started arguing about what to do with Edward. It didn't take long for tensions to run high. Justice on the California frontier was often swift and without due process. Death was an unfortunately common punishment and in the middle of the mountains with no law enforcement nearby, it would have been easy for the miners to get away with. Edward had no choice but to listen as a mob discussed killing him where he sat. Coming up, Edward faces the consequences of his revenge. Hi, listeners. Searching for another heart-pounding true crime series to dive into? Look no further. Solved Murder's True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast that uncovers the missing pieces to some of history's most gripping cases. Every Wednesday on Spotify, 
Join hosts Carter and Wendy, plus an ensemble cast of voice actors, as they explore the days, months, and even years leading up to a killer being caught. Each fantastic episode of Solved Murders plays out like a classic murder mystery, where the final reveal is nearly as shocking as the murder itself. Some of my favorite recent episodes include the unthinkable stabbing of an Oscar-nominated actor, the complicated private lives and deaths of a family of churchgoers, and the frantic search for a missing teenage heiress. Not every story has a happy ending, but at least they have an ending. Follow Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries free and exclusively on Spotify. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. On the night of October 17, 1874, photographer Edward Mybridge shot and killed his wife's lover, Harry Larkins. Witnesses to the murder quickly placed him in custody and debated about whether to execute him on the spot. One of the men, James MacArthur, kept his gun trained on Edward as the argument grew heated. He didn't know what to make of the situation, Edward was surprisingly calm for someone who had just committed murder. He thought carefully as the other men talked of tying a noose outside. Though technically illegal, James' new frontier justice was a common act of retribution, especially considering how far they were from a large town. As the arguments continued, it seemed most thought that Edward should be killed right then and there. But James disagreed. He convinced the others that Edward should be held accountable to the law and insisted they turn him over to the authorities. Edward kept silent the entire time. As James bound his ankles with rope, he remained quiet and cooperative. He was placed in the backseat of a buggy. Then he, James, and two other men set off towards Calistoga. Edward had clearly accepted his fate. He'd set out to kill Harry Larkins, knowing full well that he might be surrendering his own life by doing so. He hardly said a word on the ride back to town. It was the middle of the night and traveling downhill in the dark was even more dangerous than coming up. At one point, one of the wheels slipped off the edge of the path. Edward and James were thrown into the ditch and James was badly hurt. But Edward didn't attempt to run. After he fell, he got up climbed out of the ditch and sat back down in the buggy. He was there for the long haul. On October 19th, Edward was jailed in Napa. Meanwhile, his wife, Laura, was around 600 miles to the north in Portland, Oregon. For the last few months, she'd been staying there with her estranged aunt and uncle, raising her newborn son largely on her own. Far from her home, Flora was completely isolated. She had no idea her husband knew about her affair or that he'd already taken matters into his own hands. Her only consolation in those days came in fantasizing about her future life with Harry. Before she'd left for Oregon, 
the two of them had discussed running away to England together. Once they had a chance to flee, Flora believed she would finally have the family she'd always wanted. Unfortunately, her dream soon came crashing down to earth. Word of Harry's murder spread up the West Coast to Portland fast, and Flora most likely read about it in the newspaper soon after it happened. As the scandal unfolded, she was horrified to see her own name appearing in the articles. Away from San Francisco and unable to defend herself, Flora's character was dragged through the mud. Flora and her son returned to San Francisco a few weeks later. Though she had more friends in San Francisco than in Oregon, Flora mostly kept to herself. She had never felt so alone, now trapped in the house that reminded her of everything she'd lost. Her marriage was over, the love of her life was murdered, and she had no one to turn to for support. Grief-stricken, she was only able to keep herself together for her son's sake. Meanwhile, every day the news spun a new narrative about her sinful affair, until it became impossible for her to leave the house without being gawked at or ridiculed. The pressure only got worse as the weeks rolled by. In December 1874, Edward Mybridge was officially indicted for murder. Flora promptly filed for divorce. Edward's trial was set for the beginning of February in 1875. He was facing the death penalty if convicted, and his lawyers had around eight weeks to craft a winning defense. Considering that Edward was proud of what he did and refused to lie about why he did it, his attorneys had their work cut out for them. They eventually decided on invoking both an insanity defense, claiming his previous head injury caused him to go mad upon learning of his wife's affair and a controversial form of justifiable homicide called marital rights. Edward's lawyers explained it like this. Since his wife had an affair, Edward was provoked to violence by Harry Larkins. These marital rights implied that Edward was justified in killing Harry to redeem his tarnished honor. While courts disliked this argument and it wasn't legally defensible, it often drew sympathy from the male jurors, especially if they too were married. And since it was the jury who ultimately decided the outcome, not the judge, the strategy could be effective. Because of its dubious legality, Edward's lawyers were split on the marital rights defense, but they were convinced it was likely his best chance at freedom. Even after the adrenaline of the murder wore off, Edward continued to believe he was fully justified in shooting Harry. Now, all Edward could do was wait. Edward sat alone in his cell and lit his corncob pipe. His trial date was set and his attorneys had just left for San Francisco. He finally had some time to think. He took a deep inhale and leaned back. He closed his eyes and remembered Harry Larkins lying dead on the ground. A smile crept over his face. He had done the world a service. Harry couldn't hurt anyone ever again. Edward tried to put the trial out of his mind, but was irritated by his lawyers. They demanded that he also put forth an insanity defense, but the idea was preposterous. He had a reputation to uphold, and if people thought he was out of his mind, 
it would ruin his character. He knew exactly what he had done and he was proud of it. Harry Larkins had disrespected him and he had paid the price. It should be a man's right to get even. As he took another inhale from his pipe, Edward thought about how he could sway public opinion to his side. He knew in his heart that what he did was justified, but he needed sympathy and support if he was going to win. Luckily for him, a prime opportunity would soon present itself. By the time Edward's defense was decided, news of the mysterious Harry Larkin's murder had been circling the news across the West Coast for two months. People were still clamoring to know more about the enigmatic killer. A few days after Edward's indictment, the San Francisco Chronicle sent a journalist for an interview with him. Edward was all too familiar with the media's influence on public opinion. Thanks to his photography career, he had been featured in the news before and he knew the power the press held. So when he got the chance to share his story, he was excited. He wanted the world to know the truth or at least his version of the truth. In a 2012 article, retired FBI profiler, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, highlights the reasons why some criminals are more likely to convince others of their innocence. In her experience, she found that these individuals are particularly skilled at what she calls impression management. They know how to say and do all the right things to persuade people that they aren't dangerous. When the threat of danger is nullified, people are more likely to believe an individual is innocent. On December 20th, 1874, reporter George Smith arrived at the Napa jail. According to him, Edward was in excellent spirits and looked like a good-natured old farmer. Throughout the conversation, Edward took pains to craft a sympathetic narrative. He claimed to have received countless visitors and encouraging letters. He said that they not only understood what he did to Harry, they approved of his actions. He made it seem like there was already a movement that supported his cause. When asked about Harry's death, Edward was quoted saying, his punishment was deserved and that my act was a justifiable defense of my marital rights. He used that specific language to plant the concept in people's heads months before the trial. Edward was thinking two steps ahead of everyone else. The Chronicle posted the article the next day and it spread like wildfire. His strong first impression proved powerful. Now, not only were people more aware of Edward's story, but they came away on his side. He was depicted as a man who had been wronged, an underdog seeking justice in an unfair world. It was easy to root for a hero like that. And when the time for the trial finally came, his fans showed up in full force. On February 3rd, 1875, the trial began. The headlines of Edward's trial weren't just limited to the West Coast anymore. Edward Mybridge became national news. Unsurprisingly, Flora didn't show up to the courthouse. She filed for divorce, requested alimony and child support, and tried to lay low without attracting attention. That, of course, was nearly impossible. The gallery was packed with a mix of reporters and everyday citizens who supported Edward's innocence. 
From the start, the audience was biased in his favor. The actual proceedings only took a few days. After all, there was no debate about what had actually occurred. Edward had traveled dozens of miles to kill the man who slept with his wife. It all came down to convincing the jury that Edward had done the right thing. The prosecutor knew public opinion was on Edward's side. They implored the jury to look past their sympathies and honor the letter of the law. It was their duty to abide by the rules, and no matter what the context, Edward Mybridge was clearly a murderer. But the crowded Napa courthouse seemed unmoved by the prosecution's position. After their closing arguments, the rowdy crowd had to be settled before Edward's attorney, Ward Pendergast, rose for his own closing statements. Pendergast painted Edward as a loving husband who went out of his way to support Flora's every whim. Harry, on the other hand, he claimed, was a vile seducer who preyed on married women. He said that by killing Harry, Edward wasn't just getting revenge. He was protecting his wife from further harassment. Pendergast admitted that the marital rights argument wasn't technically a legal defense, saying, There is no statute that permits a man to slay his torturer, but law or no law, every fiber of a man's frame impels him to instant vengeance. He further justified Edward's actions by stating, It is a shame of our law that there is no adequate punishment for such crime as that perpetuated by Harry Larkins. Pendergast had plenty to say and spent a full two hours maligning Harry and making Edward seem like a saint. By the time he was done, he had put together such a compelling argument that the courthouse erupted in cheers. The spectators were so disruptive that the judge ordered his bailiff to arrest the loudest among them. Edward had murdered a man in cold blood and the people treated him like a hero. But no matter how supportive the spectators were, they weren't the ones making the decision. Once everyone settled, the judge sent the jury off to deliberate. Edward leaned back in his seat. It was out of his hands now. By morning, he would either be a free man or find himself in the hangman's noose. Up next, Edward's fate is decided. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. On the night of Friday, February 5th, 1875, 44-year-old Edward Mybridge sat nervously in a cramped Napa, California courthouse. 
His three-day trial for the murder of Harry Larkins had just ended. All that was left was to wait for the verdict. Edward got up from the defense table and stretched his legs. It was almost midnight. The jury had been deliberating for almost three hours. Though it was far from an eternity, Edward had expected them to reach a decision in a matter of minutes. Even so, he felt surprisingly confident. It helped that almost everyone else in the room was on his side. Words of encouragement kept his spirits high and he made easy conversation with his supporters to pass the time. At midnight, with the jury still out, Edward was returned to his jail cell. Though he was gone, his loyal fans stayed until the early hours of the morning. Even at 3 o'clock a.m., the courthouse was still crowded. Finally, at noon on Saturday, February 6th, the jury came to a decision. Edward Mybridge was found not guilty. The crowd went wild. Even Edward, who had been silent throughout the proceedings, was overwhelmed by emotion. He stood up from his chair, then started to hyperventilate and collapsed into his lawyer's arms. The cheers of his supporters were replaced by gasps as Edward's body went limp. Soon afterward, he was violently convulsing. His jaw was so tight that he couldn't speak. By all accounts, it looked like he was having a grand mal seizure. The scene was so disturbing that some had to look away. As Edward moaned on the ground, his friends tried to relax him, but nothing seemed to work. A doctor was called for, but even he couldn't help. Edward may have been showing signs of cataplexy, a rare condition that is similar to, but distinct from epilepsy. According to a 2018 General Medical News article, cataplexy is categorized by a sudden loss of muscle control triggered by strong, often pleasant emotions. During an episode of cataplexy, an individual is awake but temporarily paralyzed. Other symptoms include facial twitching, jaw tremors, and knees buckling. Though cataplexy is often caused by positive emotions such as laughter, it can also be provoked by surprise, fear, or a stressful event. Attacks range in severity, but usually go away after several minutes and are often mistaken for seizures. The condition has also been documented in some patients who have experienced severe head trauma, much like Edward had years before. The condition was unknown at the time, so all anyone could do was stand by and watch as Edward writhed on the ground. After 15 minutes, the effects of Edward's breakdown started to wear off, and he managed to compose himself. He returned to his seat, mentally and physically exhausted. After that, he was officially discharged by the judge. As he exited the courthouse, his supporters burst into applause. Four months after murdering Harry Larkins in cold blood, Edward Mybridge was a free man. When he got home, Edward closed the doors, lit his pipe, and relaxed. Justice had been served. The people believed in him and his reputation was intact. Harry Larkins would forever be known as a scoundrel and his wife, Flora, 
a heartbreaker. Edward finished his pipe and paced around the room. The excitement was back. He was free. He was untouchable. More than anything, he wanted to get back to work and prove to everyone that the violent affair hadn't affected his art. Photographing the world, that was where he felt most comfortable. After spending months in a cell, he couldn't wait to explore the outdoors. His mind reeled. There was much to plan and suddenly time felt precious. Before his imprisonment, he had secured a job with the Pacific Mail Company to take photographs in Central America. A trip away from the city was exactly what he needed now. In March of 1875, Edward felt better than ever, but Flora only felt alone. She had no family in San Francisco to help her raise her child. She was desperate. Publicly shamed and without many options, Flora filed for divorce again, claiming stronger grounds this time. In her suit, she made plenty of defamatory remarks about her former husband. She claimed that Edward had threatened her on several occasions and that he too was guilty of adultery. It's unclear how much, if any, truth there was to these claims, but Flora was undeniably angry and heartbroken. Edward had gone unpunished for killing the man she loved. Like him, she wanted revenge. On May 1st, Flora won her case. Edward was ordered to pay $50 a month in alimony and child support. It wasn't much, but at least Flora and her son would have something to live off of. Unfortunately, she never received a single cent. Two weeks after the trial had ended back in early February, Edward packed up his things and left for Central America. He knew Flora was trying to divorce him and essentially fled the country to avoid paying her. By the time the court got involved, he was already gone. There was nothing Flora could do. For her, the feeling of being abandoned was nothing new. She had been cast aside by her family twice as a child, and now her murderous husband refused to pay her what she was due. She was left to make her way on her own. Flora moved into a boarding house with her infant son and two months later was stricken with a bad case of influenza. Tragically, she never recovered. And on July 18, 1875, at the age of 24, Flora passed away. Her death was covered viciously in the papers. The media had already sided with Edward during the trial. When reporting on Flora's death, they painted her in a disgusting light. One headline read, Death relieves Mrs. Flora Mybridge from a life of sin and shame. Tragedies are often complex, and Flora's story is no exception. Though she wasn't perfect, considering everything she went through, Flora deserved significantly more sympathy than she was given. Her husband was allowed to kill a man and walk free. She wasn't even allowed to walk the streets in peace. Edward didn't learn about Flora's death until he returned from Central America four months later. When he heard her child had been placed in a church orphanage, he didn't seem to care. Considering the boy wasn't his, he didn't feel responsible. 
By that time, the frenzy around Edward's trial had relaxed considerably. Over time, he pulled his life back together. He found a new home, changed art dealers, and went back to work. Several months later, for whatever reason, Edward had a small change of heart regarding Flora's child. He took the three-year-old from the church orphanage and placed him in a different orphan house. Edward visited him occasionally over the years, but never committed to raising him as his own. When the boy was around nine years old, Edward gifted him a gold watch and a self-portrait and said his final farewells. It was the last time they ever saw each other. The boy, like his mother, was left to grow up on his own. He eventually became a farmhand. Throughout his life, he proudly claimed to be the son of the famous photographer, even though Edward could never love him. He lived a simple life and died in 1944 at the age of 69. While Flora's son faded into obscurity, the second act of Edward's life proceeded in extravagant fashion. In the years that followed the murder, he became one of the most infamous figures in the history of photography. He partnered with railroad tycoon Leland Stanford, and together in 1878, they captured the first ever recorded image of a horse in motion with all four legs raised off the ground. It became a world-famous series of photos and Edward's photo techniques became the groundwork for modern-day cinematography. His murder trial was never entirely forgotten, but it did fade into the background as his fame grew. Everyone knew what he had done, but chose to look the other way. Edward went on to live a long and successful life before passing away in 1904 at the age of 74. It's unclear if Edward was ever haunted by the ghosts of his past. His victim, deceased wife, and abandoned child all become footnotes in the story of his illustrious career. But no matter what else Edward Mybridge may have accomplished, it's important we remember him for what he was, a cold-blooded murderer. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Edward Mybridge, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Inventor and The Tycoon by Edward Ball extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>